lesson 10, and uh, we have 10, 11, and 12 to go. And um, we have, we're on part five, the fifth part of our study. And this is literature of the intertestamental period. <clears throat> and last week we talked about the Septuagint and abbreviated sometimes in literature LXX, the Roman numeral for 70. <clears throat> Why is this important? Well, it's important because it was the Bible, the Old Testament, we should say, I should say, the Old Testament of early Christians. Uh, you know, you say, why is this important? Well, why is the NIV important? Why is the King James important? It's important to most of us because we don't read Greek or Hebrew, and so we rely upon a translation to read God's Word. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that was true for early Christians who were mostly Gentiles. There were some Jews, obviously, but even Jews, as we said, who lived outside, outside of uh, the Holy Land, outside of Palestine, Jews who lived in uh, Corinth and in Philippi, uh, wherever they lived, usually outside, they tended to lose their knowledge of Hebrew, uh, or it was very minimal, and uh, they relied upon their, uh, their Bibles, just like we rely upon our English Bibles, they relied upon their Greek Bible, the Septuagint. So therefore, uh, this translation is often quoted in the New Testament by New Testament writers who are writing to Gentiles like the Apostle Paul, and he refers to it. He refers to the Old Testament. He's referring to their translation. So it, uh, it's, uh, it sometimes comes up and You'll hear people talk about this translation. Tonight we want to talk about <clears throat> a second uh, piece of literature, and we'll talk about the Apocrypha starting next week, really. Uh, that the Jewish literature we're talking about here, uh, this is not uh, exactly literature. These are manuscripts of the Bible. So here we're concerned with uh, not new literature, but really the Old Testament literature itself uh, in manuscript form, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is the name, as I say here, given to a um, amazing find of ancient manuscripts discovered in caves near the northwestern end of the Dead Sea between 1947 and 1956. The scrolls are known by other names, such as the scrolls in the Judean desert and the Qumran library. <clears throat> Qumran is the name, the Arabic name of the location where the scrolls were found. So in a lot of literature, they'll be called the Qumran manuscripts or the Qumran library because of the, it's named after the location. I should say that the original scrolls were discovered between 47 and 56 uh, I don't know if you pay much attention to the news, but you'll often see reports about new or discovered or found Dead Sea Scrolls. There has started in recent years, uh, it's always been true, but people have faked antiquities. There's all, been all kinds of fake antiquities. Physical objects uh, have been faked, but manuscripts have been faked. This has been going on. There's been quite a bit of it in recent years, and there's been a lot of faked 
Dead Sea Scroll fragments. For instance, the Museum uh, of the Bible in Washington, D.C. You may have heard of that, the Museum of the Bible. I think somebody said they had been there uh, in our class or another class, I can't remember, <clears throat> but uh, great place to go and see. They have all kinds of artifacts, Bibles and other things about the history of the Bible. And uh, they unfortunately bought a lot of fakes. <laughs> This is the Hobby Lobby family, the Green family who had a lot of money and they were buying up all kinds of stuff and somebody sold them some fake Dead Sea Scrolls. These have been discovered recently and now, you know, they've been removed from the library from the, and there's probably others out there too that have been faked and uh, they're sold uh, to people who have money who want a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But we're talking about the original between 1947 and 56, which are not fakes. Um, these, of course, um, come from this location, Qumran, that we have mentioned in our, we looked at this map before here, uh, near Jerusalem <clears throat> at the Dead Sea, south of Jericho. Uh, according to many experts, uh, this is, Dead Sea Scrolls are, thought to be the most, most remarkable uh, manuscript discovery in modern archeology. span There's other manuscript discoveries, but this is by far the most significant, I think we could probably say in, in modern times. Let's talk about the finds. Uh, what are they? In uh, late 1947, early 1948, I remember there's a lot of uh, political influx of political fluctuations going on here because this is after World War II. Israel wants to become an independent nation and they declared themselves, they were sort of ruled by the British and they declared themselves in 1948, a nation. So these scrolls were being discovered during this political kind of unsettling time that contributed to some of the difficulties here. But in late 47, 48, they, the world was informed of the discovery of ancient manuscripts resulting from a chance find by three Bedouins who were chasing a stray goat. And they threw a rock into what we call cave one. They heard something shatter and they went in there and they found some scroll jars and they found uh, some manuscripts in one of the jars. They found a scroll of Isaiah, as a matter of fact, and some others we'll see. But it's a little funny when we look at that because we'll look at this uh, location again of of of, of Qumran, and I, I don't know what these Bedouins were. <laughs> this is a story we have. There's been a lot of discussion about the story, how these things were found, and but there's not much pasture land along the Dead Sea there. But anyway, that's what they say. They were there and they threw the rock in and they discovered the scroll, some scrolls. Uh, the, sc the first scrolls that came to attention of anyone were four scrolls, and I'll explain these in more detail in a moment. The larger Isaiah scroll, uh, a scroll really almost of the whole book of Isaiah, pretty complete. Manual of Discipline, the commentary on Habakkuk, Genesis Apocryphon, so four scrolls. Seven, we're talking about the original seven, but four. They were purchased for about $100 by a metropolitan. That's an archbishop in 
church language in the Orthodox Church, uh, associated with St. Mark's Monastery in Jerusalem. So uh, there is a, you know, a lot of religious places in Jerusalem, but one is, a, is an Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, the Orthodox Church. The Eastern Church has, you know, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Syrian, or a lot of different branches of the Orthodox Church. This was a, uh, a bishop there, an archbishop, and he bought them for $100, but he didn't really know exactly what he had when he, when he bought them. So he bought these four. Uh, learning about the scrolls was Professor Eliezer Sukhanik of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. <clears throat> he purchased uh, the other three scrolls, there are seven scrolls altogether. So this bishop, archbishop, had four of them. And I'm leaving out a lot of the story because it goes for <laughs> a lot of details here. But he heard about these scrolls that were floating around Jerusalem. And he bought three scrolls, the hymn scroll, the war scroll, second Isaiah scroll, from an Arab antiquities dealer in Bethlehem. Um, so here's the seven scrolls that uh, were the original seven Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and I'll talk about each one of these in just a moment here and explain, but these are the seven original scrolls that <clears throat> we're talking about. Now, let me just say, there's an Isaiah scroll. There's a second Isaiah scroll, two Isaiah scrolls that were found in cave one. There's a commentary on Habakkuk, a manual of discipline. That's really a kind of rule book for the community, for the Essenes. Apocryphon, that Genesis, that's just stories, apocryphal stories based on Genesis. Uh, Thanksgiving hymns, a collection of Psalms, and the order of wherefore, eschatological battle between the sons of light and sons of darkness. We'll talk about that in some detail, is that these people who copied the scrolls and produced the scrolls uh, thought of themselves as living in the end of the age, <clears throat> and they were the sons of light, and everybody else was sons of darkness. They were the only good guys. Uh, in 1948, the Metropolitan made contact with the American Schools of Oriental Research in Jerusalem. This was a school that, that um, studied, people came over and studied in Jerusalem and so forth, Americans. Uh, he made contact because he had these scrolls uh, and you know, didn't know what, much about them. And there were some American scholars there uh, and they were determined to be quite ancient. One of the scholars uh, was a student of William F. Albright. And he looked at them, he knew they were pretty ancient. And so they sent photographs to the leading expert in America, a man named William F. Albright. And Albright dated the Isaiah scroll to about 150 BC. That was a thousand years older than any copy of Isaiah known to exist. And this was an amazing thing. Albright was a tremendous scholar, taught at Johns Hopkins, but he had an expert knowledge of ancient writing and ancient scripts. This is called paleography. And <clears throat> paleography study ancient scripts and writing, which changes over time, but there you can you can get an estimate uh, about how old a document is from the script, especially scribes who are copying and so forth. And he, he actually was absolutely correct just by looking at the photographs, he dated them to 150 BC. This is Albright here. Uh, 
he was very famous for sort of inventing what we call biblical archaeology. That is, trying to study archaeology and see how it fits with the Bible and so forth. Um, this is Codex uh, Aleppo, Aleppo Codex. Now, this is a copy of the Old Testament. This was the oldest thing that was around when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. So the oldest copy of the Old Testament came from about A.D. 925. You know, This is more than a thousand years later than the Isaiah scroll that was found. Now, notice it's called a codex. A codex is uh, what, what we have here. Uh, we call a book. It's bound on the end, and we call that a book. Uh, but it's a codex form of book. I'm, I mentioned that before. And uh, before the codex, all books... <laughs> were scrolls like that, rolled up. Papyrus scrolls or parchment scrolls. The book, the Codex, wasn't invented until about the year AD 100, after the New Testament was written. Early Christians adopted the Codex quite early for the New Testament. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are scrolls, because that was the only kind of book form we had. And you would only have, you know, you'd have a, a, a something like Isaiah would take a whole scroll, a large scroll to, to put it on. So this was a tremendous discovery when Albright uh, recognized the date of the Isaiah scroll because this was much older. Now, why, don't we, why didn't we have older copies? This is because Jews, who may basically copied the Old Testament, uh, would, would copy them uh, very carefully. Jew, Jews, uh, Jewish scholars copied things extremely carefully. They counted words, they counted lines, they counted everything. And when a manuscript got fairly old and depleted, they would put it in a, uh, they, they didn't know what to, just like us with old Bibles, what do you do with an old Bible? They would put it in a, in a room uh, called a Geniza that was usually attached to a synagogue. And actually, we have found some of these uh, Genesis, like in Egypt, there's a very famous one where you got really like old Bibles in there, old manuscripts. So they would, you know, update their copies and copy them. So in our possession at the time, um, we just didn't have any older copies. Now, I'll just tell you the truth right away. The Isaiah scroll was pretty much exactly like this one. So we knew right away Jews, that the Jews had copied the Bible very, very carefully. So uh, Albright saw that, knew this was a revolutionary kind of thing. The existence of the scrolls was officially announced to the world on April 11th, 1948. The press release that suggested the scrolls were connected with some comparatively little known sect or monastic order, possibly the Essenes. Now I mentioned uh, Sukhanik, uh, Professor Eliezer Sukhanik, who purchased those three scrolls, he was the first person who really looked at them and thought these might be the Essenes. We talked about the Essenes before as one of the Jewish sects. They're not mentioned in the Bible at all, but we know they were a Jewish sect because Josephus, who we talked about, that Jewish historian, <coughs> a politician, general, and so forth, uh, he mentions them 
Christians mention them. Even Romans mention the Essenes. So we knew they existed. Uh, they just not mentioned in the New Testament. But he, uh, Sukhanate looked at it and others looked at it and thought, you know, this looks like the, the manual of discipline, their discipline manual and so forth, their, their code of conduct looks like we're talking about the Essenes here. So uh, that was announced in April the 11th, 1948 through that press release. And then on the 26th, Sukunik told the world about what he had. So April the 11th of 48, the four scrolls were told, we were told, or the world was told in 1948 that these four scrolls existed. And then Sukunik and on April the 26th, 15 days later, announced that he had three scrolls in his possession. Uh, the Metropolitan, this archbishop, he wanted to sell his scrolls once he found out they were worth quite a bit of money, you know, probably. But people were reluctant to invest money in the scrolls because, you know, it was unclear who owned them. Remember, we said that... Uh, you know, the question is, you know, who, who's in control of these things? Because Israel was just claiming to be a nation, and uh, Jordan claimed this territory, Israel claimed this territory, both claimed the scrolls. So a lot of, a lot of things went on here I'm not telling, but in a secret deal, uh, Sukunik's son bought them for $250,000. And the scrolls were presented to the state of Israel, where they were united with the three purchased by Sukunik. So Sukunik's son bought the four uh, and uh, for 250, and then Sukunik had the three that he had bought, and they were reunited. Um, the scrolls um, were um, uh, presented to the state of Israel, and uh, they do remain with the state today. Now, these seven original Dead Sea Scrolls are in a um, they're from Cave One. We'll talk about other caves, but they're from Cave One, and they are housed in a special structure at the Israeli Museum called the Shrine of the Book. <clears throat> now, if you ever go to Israel, usually, often, maybe sometimes the last place you go or one of the latter places you go is the Israeli Museum and uh, Israel Museum, and uh, there you will see. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's, there's what a scroll jar looks like. Here's a scroll jar. Uh, and you see the lid there, the top of the lid. They designed this part of the museum to look like that scroll jar, the shrine of the book. And if you go inside, this is what it looks like. The top is like the scroll jar. And then, um, yeah, I forgot that again, Pansy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, after you even reminded me, I forgot to go in there and uh, make it big. Is it accessibility? I think yeah, it is. Yeah, it's display cursor. Let me make it bigger here. There you go. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, the scrolls are here. And they're in some places here. I've never been able to good, get a good photograph of this anywhere. I don't know whether Israel just doesn't like people photographing this, but they're actually in lighted places here if they're there. Now, Israel loans these scrolls 
for various uh, displays and you know in different places like in america they've been in the united states and so forth and so they're not always there but <clears throat> this is where their their permanent location is the shrine of the book um so let's talk about these scrolls um what what how they're known and named so all the scrolls have a uh, have a, a designation a nomenclature like this the first number is the cave that they're in. There are 11 caves where they found scrolls. So you could have a one through 11 there. Q stands for Qumran. Then the name of the book and A is the first Isaiah scroll. Because remember I said that there were two, two scrolls of Isaiah found in cave one. And so this is how they're designated. Here are the scrolls again. <clears throat> so you can see you've got uh, 1Q, Qumran, Isaiah A, and you've got 1Q, Isaiah B. And then these others are 1Q. This P stands for Pesher, which is literally a commentary. It's, an, it's a name for a commentary on Habakkuk. And then uh, 1QS is uh, the rule book, the manual of discipline. It's kind of a, maybe an unusual name for a set of rules, but uh, one of the earlier, one of the early persons who looked at this document was a Methodist <laughs> and Methodists have, you know, a discipline, a, a manual of discipline, or they for ever since John Wesley. And he, he picked that name for it. You can see the dates here, second century BC, about 150 or, or earlier, maybe first century BC, first century. Uh, not all these not all these documents were copied at Qumran. Some were brought to Qumran. Some of the manuscripts were brought to Qumran. Some were, in fact, copied there. Uh, made out of, some were papyrus, as we'll see, some are parchment. So we talked about these, uh, Isaiah Scroll, Thanksgiving, and so forth. So those are the original seven Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a lot more. <clears throat> than that. I say here the most significant scrolls were the St. Mark's Isaiah scroll, a complete scroll of Isaiah estimated to be about a thousand years or more older than any known manuscript of Isaiah. Um, here it is. It's a scroll, uh, a parchment scroll of Isaiah. So parchment is animal skin. And you make it you make it from different kind of animal skins. Um, papyrus is a plant that grows in Egypt. It's a little more fragile; doesn't quite last as long. Generally thought as though we have <laughs> we have pieces of papyrus that are you know two thousand years old. But um, parchment is 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 very durable and. Uh, this is animal skins. They use different animals. The, they use sheep at uh, Qumran, but there are different animals uh, are used. Calves, various kinds of animals are used, goats to make uh, these manuscripts. Here's the Isaiah scroll. It's about 23 feet long, made up of 17 parchment sheets sewn end to end. So I said the most significant scrolls uh, is the Isaiah scroll, then the Manual of Discipline, that a handbook. 
setting forth regulations uh, uh, for admission to the community and details of life in the community. Over 200 caves have been found in the general vicinity of the first cave. 25 of these contained pottery, similar to that scroll jar that we showed a picture of, found in the first cave. 11 caves contain scrolls or fragment of scrolls. So when you see a Qumran scroll, it's either gonna start with a one, two, three, four, five, up to 11. The most significant uh, important caves are cave one, cave four, where more than 15,000 fragments were found, pieced together, proved to be the fragments of about 600 manuscripts, 150 of which were biblical manuscripts, including all the Old Testament books except Esther, and cave 11, where an Aramaic translation of Job, and we talked about Aramaic, uh, Hebrew and Aramaic before Aramaic, the lingua franca of the ancient Near East when Israel was taken into captivity, they came back and spoke Aramaic quite a bit. A manuscript of the Psalms and a copy of Leviticus in Paleo-Hebrew script. Remember, we also talked about <clears throat> the fact that Hebrew was first written in a certain script, it's called Paleo-Hebrew, but when the Jews were taken into captivity, they picked up Aramaic language and the Aramaic alphabet. Really, it's the same alphabet, just written a different way. And so the manuscripts that we have of uh, the Old Testament are mostly all uh, in Aramaic square script. It's what we use today to read Hebrew in the Bible and so forth. But they found a copy in Paleo-Hebrew, Old Hebrew script, and the Temple Scroll. The Temple Scroll is a scroll that uh, claims to be uh, a, uh, a, a, uh, a vision, a, the directions given to Moses for building a temple, that God actually gave Moses real directions for building the temple. And it's quite a bit bigger than the temple that, that Solomon built and so forth. It's not genuine, but it's an interesting document nevertheless. Um, so, um, this is, uh, a, a map again, showing Qumran here on the Dead Sea on the Northwest corner of the Dead Sea, Masada, we talked about Jerusalem and so forth. And uh, here are the caves, the 11 caves that have manuscripts. Here's uh, Qumran, the actual site where the Essenes lived right here. And then here's these caves, three, 11, one, two, a lot of the caves just right there near the actual site where, uh, where the Essenes lived. We've seen some of these photos, but here, here's the north shore of the Dead Sea. So here on, we're on the northwest corner here, and here's Qumran here, a very barren, desolate area here, as you can see. Of course, there's a modern road there now to get there that there wasn't in ancient times. And uh, 
again, another view. You can see how difficult it would have been to get there, how isolated they were with here at the foot of the, these mountains here, these hills. Um, so here's the areas of cave one and two, another view. And here is the Qumran settlement where the Essenes uh, lived. Um, so here's another view. This is the visitor center here. If you go there, you'll get the visitor center. There's a cemetery. They had an aqueduct. They had uh, in, the, in the mountains up here, the hills, they built a uh, kind of a storage area out of the, just carved out. It's a, it's a kind of a regular place carved out. What didn't have to do much work, but they just ran a, a kind of a, a carved out place here to bring water down from there. In the wintertime, water, this place is very dry here, but in the winter, you'll get these rains and all this water would be stored in this pool up there and it would store thousands of gallons of water. And that's how they would live here in this desert area by that aqueduct. And so here's some of the caves here and so forth, four through 10, but the others are north up here. So here's the settlement again, and the Wadi Qumran here, the visitor center here and so forth. Um, here's their cemetery and so by, looking at the uh, bodies buried there, you learn a lot about who these people were. They were men uh, who came out to the desert to live here and their lifespan wasn't so great, um, probably because of hygiene. I think I have a map here where it, they have a latrine over here, way up here, where they would, they would go to the latrine over here and uh, walk quite a distance. But they think that they carried back with them, you know, various uh, parts of feces and diseases and germs and infected themselves when they took their ritual baths, as we'll see. So their lifespan wasn't uh, particularly long there in the caves, in the at Qumran. So here you can look and see it's right on the Jordan River, <clears throat> the Dead Sea. Here's the area of cave one, um, where the first scrolls were discovered, the original seven Dead Sea Scrolls. There's cave one, there's cave two right there. So there's cave one, you can see how the size of people here and climbing up to cave one there. And there's cave one entrance right there. Here's cave two. So amazingly, you know, for a couple thousand years, apparently these, as far as we know, these things had not been discovered apparently. So here we're looking at the Wadi Qumran, the Qumran settlements over here. And here's some caves here at these, um, Marl uh, terraces here, sort of a kind of a limestone, form of limestone. So here's cave four. You notice there's a 4A and 4B. Why would you have that? <laughs> well, that's because <clears throat> when they started getting manuscripts uh, out of here, 
they they got mixed up. They got some from this cave and some from this cave, and they couldn't tell which one was which. So rather than say, well, these were cave four and these were cave five, they they just said they're cave four because they didn't know if they came from this cave or this cave. We'll just call them all one cave because we, we just want to kind of keep the best track as we can. So there's a 4A and a 4B here. And here is the caves located along here. This is a little uh, area here to stand under. I guess when we, I was there, that wasn't there. It'd been nice because it was hot there. Very, very unbelievably hot place to be. Here you're looking down from the Qumran settlement to Cave 4 over here. And uh, apparently, originally, there was some sort of uh, footpath here. These things got, over time, have worn away. Apparently there was. That's what been told, that there was access, because you can only get up there now by you know climbing through a rope or something like that. But apparently there was a way to access these things easier 2,000 years ago. So here's K4, where those um, many, many manuscripts were found, uh, you know, fragments of 600 manuscripts, uh, 15,000 fragments were found in K4A and 4B. There's a look at K4. <clears throat> uh, I happened to, uh, when I was there, get a picture of Indiana Jones uh, when he was there at Qumran. I don't know why Pansy's laughing about that, but uh, this is my favorite picture. <laughs> favorite picture. <laughs> and uh, here's another. Well, this is a different. This is a. Uh, this is when I was on one of my secret missions to Israel. <laughs> I couldn't. I can. I can't tell you about it. You can see my uh, Israeli bodyguards. They, they're pretty heavily armed here and uh, watching over me when I was in Israel. The truth is, these two uh, soldiers. Uh, they're goal in life was to come to America, go out West and become cowboys. That's literally what they, what they said. Anyway, here's K4, what it, you know, what it looks like inside where these manuscripts and thousands were found, been thoroughly scrubbed now. Here's K5, cave six, not much to see. You've seen, seen one cave. I guess you've seen them all, haven't you? and uh, cave eight and so forth. They're all, some are natural caves <clears throat> and some have been worked on a little bit by a man, man's working. Let's look at the biblical uh, text here, uh, books of the Old Testament represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you can see the number here beside the book. Um, every book but Esther has been found there, you know. We assume they had Esther too, but you know, there's only one Ezra and one Nehemiah. So we don't know, uh, you know, if, if we don't really know if, if these other caves had been looted, if they had, if they stored more than this and people got them over time, we just don't really know what the situation is, but this is what we has been discovered. And then here we have the cave and the number of manuscripts. See, most of them are from K4 of biblical manuscripts. There's other things besides biblical manuscripts uh, at Qumran, other ancient works. So the, the number here in parentheses is the number of, of copies of a biblical book at Qumran.
Um, the total um, of the um, the total number of documents fragmentary. Now they're not complete documents. The total number of individual different documents is about nine hundred and thirty documents. So a nine hundred and thirty different uh, titles, you might say, uh, have been discovered. Most of them, as I said, are written on parchment, which is animal skin, and 150 on papyrus, which is made from a plant <clears throat> from Egypt. Um, most of these Qumran manuscripts are written in Hebrew, but 130 are written in Aramaic. Remember that language we talked about, Aramaic? And there are 27 that are written in Greek. So Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek are represented. The total number of biblical manuscripts here is somewhere between 200, a little over 200. Some, there's estimates 206, 213. That's about uh, a less than a quarter of the 930 total. So about a fourth of the manuscripts are biblical manuscripts. Others are manuscripts, other types. Uh, we're going to talk about the Apocrypha. There are copies of three books of the Apocrypha at uh, Qumran <clears throat> have been found. Uh, let's talk about the ruins of Qumran. The name Qumran comes from, as I said, the Arabic name of the location of Cave 1 and its vicinity. Not far from Cave 1, south of it on the plateau below the cave are the ruins known by the Arabic name of Kirbet Qumran, the ruins of Qumran. So this site was long known to archaeologists, but you know, providentially, um, here we're talking about the site here, right here. Here's the caves. We we the site's been known for a long time, but fortunately, providentially, it had not been excavated. It hadn't been uh, nothing had been done there, which was very good because you know the scrolls and what we found here go together. So it's very helpful to find the scrolls and then start excavating and kind of using one to interpret the other. So an, an excavation prior to the library would have little significance and uh, it, wouldn't, it, would, it would have, wouldn't have been a good thing. The original uh, excavations were done by an archeologist who was a Roman Catholic priest named Roland DeVoe between 51 and 56. He did the excavations here and the archeological excavations. And uh, he called it the Monastery of Qumran. So, you know, he was a monk himself. And, uh, and the, these this people here were, 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 were men. <clears throat> it was a, so in that sense, it's kind of monastic. So when, when, did they, when did the Essenes come here? Sometime between 150 and 100 BC. Between 150 and 100 BC, the, the Essenes came to Qumran. And uh, so we know some of the manuscripts are older than that. The Isaiah scroll is probably older. So it was probably bought, brought, maybe from Jerusalem, other places, probably from Jerusalem, to Qumran, when these people came out into the desert to establish this community. 
here's the excavation. So what we have left are just walls, just the, the foundational walls. These walls would have gone up. Some were two stories, apparently, even, and would have had some sort of roof of some sort of material. And uh, so we just have, this is what you see in a lot of excavations, just what has, uh, what is left of the, of the walls. Uh, if you go there, you walk around, uh, kind of look at all that stuff. This is called the scriptorium, scriptorium at uh, Qumran. Uh, so this is where they think they copied some manuscripts because they found in this place inkwells, pen, you know, styluses. They found the tables for writing on and kind of thing. So they think this is where they copied some manuscripts. This is the location of that. You find a lot of mikvahs there. What's a mikvah? A mikvah is a ritual uh, bathing place. And what you do is this thing is filled with water and you walk down in there and immerse yourself. Uh, and you become ritually clean. Now it's not physically clean. <laughs> you're not doing it because you're dirty. And I remember I said, that's one of the theories that why these people died so, so quickly is because they were carrying the, their feces on their feet back here, uh, getting into the water and then spreading this disease and, stu and stuff at Qumran. Now these mikvahs are extremely common throughout the ancient world of Judaism uh, in Jerusalem around the temple. Uh, we talked about the temple, the temple mount. There's just bunches of these mikvahs. I didn't show any of you, but this is this would be a place where on the day of Pentecost, people were probably baptized. You know, they baptized all these people. How did they do that? Well, there's just all kinds of mikvahs because if you went into the temple, you had to uh, go into one of these baths. These things would have been covered, uh, you know, so you'd have some privacy. We're just seeing the walls that are left here. And uh, you would have, you would just walk down in there and, and that you would be richly pure and you could go into the temple. So there was just a large number of these things around the temple. And these things have been found all over the ancient world where Jews were at for ritual purification. Uh, let's talk about dating the finds here. Uh, the dates assigned to the scrolls have been determined by several means. The first way was paleographers. Remember I said, this is people, paleo means old writing, old people who study ancient writing. And this is true for Greek and Hebrew. This is how we date manuscripts of the New Testament. One way we date them is by the type of writing. Uh, they also, uh, and, the, and the scrolls dated from third century BC. So that would be like 250 BC to around AD 50. 8050 because this place was destroyed by the Romans in 8068. The dates have been uh, generally confirmed by the type of pottery coins found there and carbon 14 dating of the linen from the scroll coverings. Um, most uh, scholars believe that um, that it was the people who lived here, uh, who uh, composed these manuscripts. So, some were brought, but most of them were written here. 
Uh, and then when the Romans came in AD 68, remember the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70. And on the way, the Romans, as they were coming down, coming to Jerusalem, they destroyed uh, Qumran, a community here, uh, as they advanced on Jerusalem. Uh, it's most likely, we believe, that they, the Qumranians put their manuscripts, their precious manuscripts, into these caves and in, in scroll jars and, uh, have been, and were preserved up until modern times. Let's talk just finally here about the Qumran community, <clears throat> what they were like, what they believed, and so forth. As I said, their community consisted mainly of <clears throat> Old Testament writings and their own sectarian, that means their, their beliefs of their Essenes. These documents make it clear that they were Jewish people, uh, the way they practiced their faith. They were sectarian, you know, like Pharisees and Sadducees, they had their own interpretation. But they had repudiated the Jewish leadership of Jerusalem and had gone out to find a community of God, probably between 150 and 100 BC. Now, when you read their literature, uh, their documents, they have all these negative terms about the Jerusalem leadership, the priest and so forth. They, they call themselves the sons of light. And people who were not part of their community were just damned. They were the sons of darkness. <clears throat> according to... Uh, According to uh, various sources like Philo, we hadn't talked about him, a Jewish writer in Alexandria, and Josephus, who we talked about, they say there were about 4,000 Essenes, 4,000 in Judea. There would have been about 150 to 300 living at Qumran. So they were living in other communities we haven't discovered, but we discovered this one, and probably between 150 and 300 living here. To enter the community, the Qumran community, a Jew had to undergo a period of rigorous testing, a kind of apprenticeship. Now just keep that in mind because this is totally different from Christianity. We don't make you undergo a kind of apprenticeship or testing. We accept you into our church on a basis of faith. You have a testimony that you have trusted Christ and you're admitted to the community. Not here. Uh, First, you had to be indoctrinated into the laws of the community. That's that manual of discipline. And at the end of a year, you were examined by probably the entire community. And if they, they accepted you, then you turned over your wealth to some custodian. These uh, people practiced a community of goods. They shared their wealth and their goods. Nobody, there was no individual ownership. But you still had to go through a second year of testing during which you couldn't touch the drink of the many. This is some sort of uh, sacred religious drink and so forth. But your property, which you turned over after the year, the custodian kept it <clears throat> and he didn't spend it or anything, just held it in trust. At the end of the second year, if you went through this two-year probationary period, then you were part of the group, part of the community, and you were given a rank. And uh, your property, your counsel, your judgment belonged to the community. You lived in the wilderness, and obviously that was a very rigorous life. 
They didn't have much practice life, a private life as far as we know. They ate together in common, spent much of their time in spiritual practices like reading the Bible and examining their own spiritual progress. They apparently had something like an annual test at which you were advanced or set back in your rank, depending upon how they evaluated your progress and you could be banished from the community uh, if you uh, did not obey the rules of the community. The Qumran community, when it was discovered in you know, the late 40s and the early 50s, was identified as some sort of Baptist sect because of the references to various ritual washings and liberal scholars have connected John the Baptist with it. Let me just say again about liberal Christianity. Remember, we talked about that. There are people who are claim to be Christians, but they're liberal, that they don't accept the authority of the Bible. The Bible's just a book and it's got a lot of truth in it. It may have some errors. You know, that often liberals deny the deity of Christ. They may, they may accept it. Sometimes they deny the resurrection. They may accept it. They, you know, they're just, you know, it's a strange idea, but liberalism, remember, infected the major denominations at the beginning of the 20th century, late end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, and most of the major denominations uh, are quite liberal. The Methodist, and that varies among different Methodists. There's very conservative Methodist, and same thing in Presbyterians. There's liberal Presbyterians, the Presbyterian USA, um, Episcopalians, others, you know, who are tend to be more liberal. But liberal scholars, and this is not necessary. This is just people who study Christianity uh, and liberals in general, liberal scholars, they have an evolutionary view of how religion developed. Uh, they believe that all religions developed uh, from one another. There's no such thing as revelation. God doesn't reveal anything. People just build upon the beliefs of others. So Christianity, how do you, how do you explain Christianity? Where did it come from? Well, it borrowed. And so when Qumran was discovered, they said, aha, this is proof that Christians got their beliefs from somebody else. Uh, you know, so they said, this is a Baptist sect because you got these ritual washings. And so, and they even connected John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was probably a member of this, you know. But I say here, unlike the New Testament, the baptism at Qumran was not an initiatory rite. In other words, when someone gets saved in our church, uh, we baptize them fairly quickly. Uh, as soon as they're you know, able, we, we baptize them. We don't, they don't have to go through a two-year period. But this baptism was reserved for somebody who passed all the tests. The, the baptism was a sacred ritual reserved for those who were pure, who would purify themselves. It was not a rite that you admitted to the community. Our bapt Christian baptism is an, you're admitted to the church, you know, and you're not, it's not for people who have been there for years. Very legalistic community. They studied the law, the Torah, and they had these views, eschatological, eschatology has to do with the future things. And they, those were very significant. They looked at the Old Testament and they said, you know, the Old, the Old Testament prophets are talking about us at Qumran, us, we Essenes. And they applied a lot of these things to themselves. When they read the Old Testament, they saw two messiahs one from Israel, or David, a Davidic Messiah, 
and a political that uh, who's a political messiah, and then they saw another from a line of Aaron. Now they had to kind of write in one way because <clears throat> we know the Messiah is prophet, priest, and king. There is a sense in which the Messiah, Jesus is uh, political. He's a, he's a king and he's also a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So they saw those things in the Old Testament, <clears throat> but they divided it into two messiahs. Uh, in their documents, they, they talks about that how God promised to send them a teacher of righteousness in connection with the end of the age. That teacher is not the Messiah, but he's preparing for the Messiah. And according to the documents, they did send, uh, God did send them a teacher of righteousness who was a priest from Jerusalem. Now, some say he might have been a high priest, but he didn't establish the community. But 20 years after it was established, God raised up this teacher of righteousness. And this teacher of righteousness was opposed by the wicked priests. Now, the exact meaning of the documents here is not exactly clear, uh, but there was external pressure which persecuted the teacher of righteousness and resulted ultimately in his death. Well, finally, what about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the New Testament? <clears throat> How, we may ask, could the Qumran community have had any influence on early Christianity? As I said, the most common suggestion is that John the Baptist may have grown up as a member of the community. But there's a lot of points of similarity between John's teaching and the Qumran beliefs. He believed, as they did, that the end of the age was upon them. He quoted from Isaiah 40, as they did. He practiced baptism or immersion. But we have to look at the complete picture, not only at the similarities. John's parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, were members of the establishment. Zechariah, his father, was one of the priests at Jerusalem whom the Qumranians labeled the sons of Belial, the men of the pit. Is it likely that these devout people would have trusted entrusted their son to these schismatics who would teach him to hate his parents along with all the other sons of darkness? No, not likely. So there's no reason to believe John the Baptist was somehow given by his parents to be raised at Qumran. John's doctrine of baptism was not the Qumran document. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was for sinners. It was an initiatory rite. And John's attitude toward the Jerusalem leadership was diametrically opposed to that of Qumran. As far as the Qumranians were concerned, they were the sons of darkness. But John looked on men as savable. He called upon people to repent and be baptized. Um, it's safe to say then that Qumran and the Essenes had no direct influence on the development of Christianity. As I say, liberals will look there and try to say, okay, that's where Christianity got its start. No, Christianity is a revealed religion like the Old Testament religion. And uh, Qumran had no direct influence. The Essenes, of course, are not mentioned in the New Testament and there's no indication that Jesus, the disciples, were ever connected with Essene or the beliefs of these people. Okay, that uh, takes us to the end of our lesson tonight. And next week we will um, I got to Stop that sharing, don't I? Yeah. Let's see. Resume share.
stop share. I better stop the share. Okay, good. All right. So 